You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin, and hello to our lovely Larry and Larissa, who we know are always listening. Of course, Larry and Larissa, um, our our most loyal listeners. And they're joining us as we wade through the swamp that is macroeconomics. Kevin, I'm not sure, did you pick up my attitude this week that I was not at all looking forward to this show? Well, the the budget, it is, it's a bit of a drudgery, the budget, isn't it? It is the most incredibly irritating event because there's a lot of hot air expended over the budget. And I think that that's hot air that disguises what is really going on, which is an annual missed opportunity to make Australia a better country to live in. And the frenzy over the surplus. It's, you're just sitting there just going, please stop, just just stop talking. But and we're going we're gonna to get into all of that. Yep. Well, I wasn't looking forward to it until we decided to turn it into a party. <laughs> so we have invited two wonderful people in to help us deal with this annual absurdity. And I happen to know that these are two people who are also like Kevin and myself. They're also not economists. <laughs> so who better to talk about the budget with? And I also suspect that like us, Kevin, they have a perverse interest in the economy. And the reason I suspect that is because we did meet them at a workshop called Rethinking Capitalism that was put on by Modern Money Lab, who are an organisation who do look at the economy in much the same way we do. They use the modern monetary theory lens. So welcome to the show, Lily. Hi, Anne. Lovely to be here. And welcome, Andy. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. And before we do get on to that incredibly irritating event, Kevin, we might have a listen to our regular communication with economist Professor Bill Mitchell, who is one of the guys who started all this. He is one of the co-founders of Modern Monetary Theory. And in fact, we all need to get out our pens and paper. And I've brought my bit of paper. Excellent. You can hear the the rustling in the background. (laughs) Andy, Lily, I'll just give Andy his bit of paper. paper. And I'm just going to give Lily your bit of paper. Kevin, you're going to get your own. I've got my (laughs) piece of paper and a a, a pen, no problems. On that note, shall we um, head over to uh, a letter from the Cape? Let's do it. 
It's time for A Letter from the Cape with economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Today you will need to get a pencil and paper out because we're going to do some sums. Before that, I'm reminded of the 1959 song, P-A-Y-E, from Trinidad's most famous Calypso musician, King Sparrow. This was a time when the Trinidadian independence movement was in full swing, and the People's National Movement, led by Dr Eric Williams, was developing policies to take the nation beyond colonial rule. In that song, Sparrow sings... Because all who working must pay, yes, the doctors say, to pay as you earn. He was of course referring to the fact that national jurisdictions have the capacity to enforce the imposition of tax liabilities that they impose upon their citizens. So how does that help us understand what the capacities of our federal government are? Well, here's a little game you can play with your friends or family over dinner. One person is the government, and the rest pretend that they are citizens who face that tax liability. Today, I'll be the government, and you can be the citizens. Just like the sparrow understood, the rules are that you have to pay me 100 game tokens each day, or suffer the consequences. I alone issue the game tokens. In the game of Monopoly, the game tokens are bits of paper that are distributed by the bank, whereas in our game, we will just write numbers down on the paper to record the transactions. So now you have a problem. You don't have any tokens. How will you get my game tokens to pay the tax and avoid those serious consequences. As Sparrow noted, all those working must pay. So I will pay you a hundred tokens if you do some work around my house each day. Just pretend, okay? You realise that offering your labour to the government is the only way you can get my tokens and avoid the consequences. Get your pencils at the ready. Draw two columns the left column for government and the right column for you. Now I pay you 100 game tokens for your work around my house. So in the right column write wages 100. Go on, do it. You have now solved problem number one, the tax liability. In the right column also write taxes 100. Then underneath write Saving zero. Why? You earned 100 and paid taxes of 100, so there are no tokens left. In the left column write, Government spending 100, because I paid you 100 tokens to do work around my house. Also write, underneath, Tax revenue 100 to record the taxes received. Then underneath write, Fiscal Injection Zero, which records the net effect of my fiscal policy. Spending 100 less taxes 100 equals zero. Fiscal policy is the government's spending and tax decisions. We would say in this case 
that the fiscal policy of the government is now balanced. What did you learn? That when fiscal policy is balanced, the citizens cannot accumulate any game tokens. What does that mean? It means that saving is zero and saving is the way to accumulate wealth in terms of game tokens. Also note that I had to spend first before you could meet the tax liability. From philosophy 101 and Aristotelian logic, we know that causality occurs when one event contributes to the production of another event which lies in the future. In our case, government spending causes the citizens to have the tokens that they can use to pay taxes. The spending created the income that provided you with the capacity to pay the taxes. The taxes did not and could not fund the government spending. I issue the tokens exclusively and can create as many as I like whenever I like. Okay, day two arrives. I want more work done around the house, so I increase spending on labour services to 120. Now there is more work being done and less of you are unemployed. The tax liability remains at 100 per person. So write taxes 100 to record the tax payment. Then do the sum and write saving 20. Why? Because you earned 120 and only paid 100 in taxes, you now have wealth equal to 20 tokens. In the left column, write spending 120 and taxes 100. Do the sum and write fiscal injection 20. Why? Normally, we would call this a fiscal or budget deficit because the government has spent more than it is withdrawn in taxes. I prefer to call it an injection, a positive connotation, because government has injected a positive net amount of tokens into the private sector. In this case, 20 tokens that were spent were left untaxed in the private sector. Now you know that a fiscal injection, otherwise known as a budget deficit, allows you to save that many tokens and increase your net wealth. The fiscal injection also increased employment and private incomes, another positive. Okay, day three dawns. Treasurer Jim Chalmers claims we must have budget repair, that the government has to live within its means. He proposes to cut government spending. So we follow suit and I offer only 80 tokens, a cut of 40, which means private incomes fall by that much and there is less paid work available. There is the same amount of work to be done, but there is unemployment because I won't pay for that work in day three. The tax liability remains at 100. In the right column write wages 80, also write taxes 100. Then do the sum and write savings minus 20 because you only earned 80 and had to pay 100 in taxes.
in the left column write spending 80 and taxes 100, do the sum and write fiscal injection minus 20. So the government is now in surplus because it has spent less into the economy than it has taken out in taxes. Where did you get the tokens on day three to meet your deficit of 20? You would have to run down the wealth you had accumulated on day two, the savings of 20 tokens. So the government surplus has destroyed your wealth by 20 tokens. That sounds like a bad outcome. Now try to relate these sums to the world we live in where we are told that government surpluses are desirable and deficits are to be avoided. Think about how stupid that sort of logic is. Next time, we can introduce government debt into our little pencil and paper game for more shocking revelations. Until then, take care. Well, Kevin, where else but on community radio would you get to do a communal economic exercise? That was, uh, that was, <laughs> I don't know what that was. I was so impressed with our guests who were busily scribbling down numbers there. And I'm wondering what their takeaway was from this, because for me, day three was a tragedy. So, Lily, how did you respond to day three? Yeah, for me, it's um, classic MMT 101. If you are accumulating a surplus as a government, you know someone's paying for it and it's going to be translatable to a private sector deficit, as well as, of course, a service deficit, as we saw, mm-hmm. and the pain that comes with unemployment. If the government is taking money out of the economy when it doesn't need to take money out of the economy, you end up with people uh, depleting their savings. So then you end up with a private sector that's more financially insecure. You end up with more people who are unemployed, more people locked out of the economy and suffering in poverty. And you also end up with a less productive economy because you've got less people doing stuff. And I'm wondering, Andy, would you agree with that? I would. It's almost like Bill Mitchell was following the budget and (laughs) just translating it into a little game, but yes. Yes, it was a mini economy. I kept seeing it in a terrarium Mm. for some reason. (laughs) Three days of the mini economy. So I was wondering if we could meet our guests properly. And one thing I've been wondering about each of you is um, you seem to be fairly conversant with modern monetary theory. So, Lily, I thought I might start with you and just ask you how long you've been uh, looking at this kind of economics and how you came across it. Yeah, uh, my first contact with modern monetary theory was when I went back to the seaside town in Greece that I grew up in, and I witnessed firsthand the effects of the uh, austerity measures imposed by the EU on Greece uh, as a result of the global financial crisis in 2008. So basically, one in three shops was boarded shut. Mm. My friends that were sort of social workers, nurses, had had their um, incomes cut by about 30%, and there was just a general sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Mm. Sort of imagine the way you might have felt on on the morning of the 2019 uh, election when we found out that the party with no policies had won. (laughs) That's kind of how you felt the whole time. 
Mm. And I asked my dad, who's very politically and economically involved, and he was an economist actually, but anyway, we'll, we'll forgive him that. <laughs> um, and um, he uh, said, well, of course, we've just got a Grexit out of there. We've got to adopt, you know, the drachma again, and then we can afford to pay for the things that we need. Mm-hmm. And I had not even heard of MMT at that time. Right. But I was like, oh. Duh, of course, if you have control of your own currency, you can afford to pay for the oh, things you need okay. to help your society thrive. And so when you came um, upon MMT, that must have it reinforced. It really clicked. Yeah. And uh, I'd kind of come across it at the intersection between various kind of economists like Kate Rayworth writing about donut economics and then from friends who introduced me to the deficit myth. Um, I do really like it because I think it really puts um, people at the centre of policy and that's where we really need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's our stories, our ideas that need to be considered. Uh, I've met very clever people in different jobs because I'm not an expert in anything. And uh, I've done physiotherapy assisting and drug and alcohol stuff and all sorts of things. But all these people have great ideas, mm-hmm. but they always feel like they're not relevant because they're like, well, I'm not an economist, so I'm economically illiterate, so I'm probably missing something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, the economy is everyone's business. Right. And for me, I'm just learning on the job. Mm-hmm. Kevin and I are learning on the job a bit too. Do you know what I've noticed, like this is mm-hmm. particularly after the budget, is that the only people that are speaking economic sense are not economists. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who's a trained economist has been speaking absolute rubbish. So, uh, so yeah. Andy, what, what's been your journey with modern monetary theory? And I can use that word journey because I mm. feel like it's not an easy thing to grasp in one conversation or one meme or one article mm. even. So tell us about mm. how you've been Counted it. Yes, it has been a bit of a journey. I sort of feel like I've always been a bit of a nascent, sort of latent um, MMTer. I've always kind of wondered when people talk about, you know, we're in all this debt. I kind of thought, well, who are we in debt to? And this is the question that sometimes people don't ask enough when we talk about, you know, government spending, government deficit, um, and we've got all this debt to pay off. Well, who are we in debt to? Well, the Reserve Bank's part of government, so are we in debt to ourselves? You know, it sort of always just made no sense. So mm. I. I then stumbled across Stephanie Kelton. Now, Stephanie Kelton is known as a modern monetary theory economist, yeah. and she wrote the book The Deficit Myth, yes. which we highly recommend yes. on this show. Yep, so shot to know. fame during the um, the Bernie Sanders campaign, yeah. uh, back at that election campaign there, yeah. because she was advising Bernie Sanders, and therefore she caught a lot of uh, international <laughs> attention. Well, I picked up the book when I put two and two together. I actually ran into Stephanie at a completely unrelated event in Melbourne, nothing to do with economics, but she spoke a little bit about her economics, and I thought, this person actually makes a bit of sense for an economist. This is interesting. Um, And I then realised she'd written this book and so I read it and thought, all right, this is everything that I've been grappling with. Um, It's actually been put into a really, you know, accessible form for people. And so I definitely do recommend it, especially for non-economists because that's who it's written for. And it's Mm -hmm. about basically debunking all that you've thought you knew about budgets, that, Mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff about not being able to afford things, about needing to achieve surplus. So it's, it's about framing things as a budget's an opportunity to make a change in a country and the people saying we can't afford it are almost certainly wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That point that Lily was making yeah. that um, economics can be for and by the people yeah. and we can all understand it and we 
need to debunk those high priests of, of economics. I, th- I think one of the um, the, the strengths of um, Stephanie Kelton and Kate Raworth with their two books, Donut Economics and, and The Deficit Myth, is mm. that they are written in plain speak. Uh, they're books about economics, but um, they make sense to somebody who might not be uh, economically yes. literate. Yeah. Yes. So, and that's why those books have such strong appeal. They, um, they make sense. Speaking of plain sense, I think we can do a bit of plain speaking about the very annoying budget that we had to witness <laughs> a few days ago and about the very annoying commentary around the budget that does disguise the fact that it is the annual missed opportunity. Before we do that, should we take a break? Sure. Uh, Let's listen to a song that might help people uh, figure out after that last exercise. We had uh, Bill uh, asking us to use a a pen and a piece of paper. I hope everyone got their pens and paper out. I'm a little more techno than that. (laughs) So uh, here's a song from um, Kraftwerk. month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. So that's a Radiothon coming up. You're on uh, Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. And, and Lily Andy and, and Lin- Andy. Andy this week. <laughs> uh, we've got the Radiothon coming up. So we're giving a bit of a pre-warning that it's coming up and we need our listeners to support this show. So we need anybody, everybody, that's you, Larry and Larissa. Larry and Larissa. <laughs> and it's only a few bucks thrown our way. And this mm-hmm. place is run on a shoestring and it, it does take money to run a radio station. So just giving a heads up, there's a radio that come up. I won't harass you too much about that now, but it is coming up. So just you know, start putting it away. Before that, we heard from... Craftwork. That was a live version of Pocket Calculator, and anybody who's seen Craftwork live, which apparently Andy has and I have, um, uh, it's an experience. Now, Craftwork were actually a, a band that started in 1979, and they're talking about pocket calculators. And then we've got Bill Mitchell, who's talking in 2023 about a pen, pen and a piece of paper. What's, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> and when was that song from? 1982 or 83, 82. which is uh, yeah. very appropriate. It's yeah. when Australia became money sovereign and uh-huh. we floated the dollar. And uh-huh. We talk about monetary yeah. sovereignty on this show. We're, we're not going there not today. Going. No, <laughs> it was uh, uh, Keating, floating the dollar. Floating the dollar, hugely important event. But one thing the uh, MMT economists are always saying, Bill Mitchell says it over and over again, that the federal government's budget is not like a household budget. 
So I'm wondering, Lily, how do you respond to the MMT economists telling us that over and over again? Well, with the fact that it's absolutely true. (laughs) And I think that might be one of the problems of MMT, that it is actually just a description of how a sovereign monetary country works. So we, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but we get the Reserve Bank to create our money. Every government spend is a new spend. It's Mm -hmm. not coming from taxpayer money. Therefore, we have, in theory, unlimited capacity to spend on things that we value. So it's all about choices about where we put our money. Mm-hmm. There's only one way, I hear, that the federal government can spend, and we're not talking state governments, we're not talking local governments, we are talking about the currency-issuing government. And if there's only one way they can spend, which is by creating new money, what's happening with all those taxes? You're right. For the federal government, it is not so that we can afford things. Uh, Taxation serves several purposes, and one of the reasons is it can act as an incentive or a disincentive. I think the recent budget had a tax on cigarettes, Mm -hmm. Uh, so we use taxation to stop people from doing stuff, and then we also use it to combat, in part, inflation, to drain money away from the economy, so that's another good use of taxation. And another one that's very close to my heart, and I think should be the centrepiece of any budget, is we can use taxation to make sure we have more equality in our society, because I think we can all agree that we're not being paid according to our value. Okay, so that's why a government budget, a federal government budget, is nothing like the budgets you and I might make at home. It's because we don't issue the currency. And we've just had the budget handed down to us. And Andy, I think you did put yourself through the exercise of listening to some of the commentary surrounding that budget. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder to listen to them as the years go by because... As, as things get more and more desperate and cost of living crises escalate, there, there is so much we can do and there's so much we should do, but so much of potential and, and capacity is being constrained by just the wrong way of thinking and the idea that we have to get a budget into balance or get a surplus when what we should be doing is, is asking very, very different questions. And, and from the outset, it was framed incorrectly. Everyone's talking about getting the books in order. Well, my, my question is, what is what have the books done for you know the books don't they don't put food on my table and budget surplus doesn't put a roof over my head, so really as as a country we should be asking why are we obsessing over getting a budget into surplus when that doesn't in itself serve any purpose really what we should be talking about is what what do we want a society to look like and what levers do we have to get there and that's not the way that budgets are framed. Mm. There's there's sort of an implicit um, notion that. Anything but the surplus will cause inflation, and that's just simply wrong. That's mm-hmm. completely wrong. There's so many ways to debunk that. You're with Ann and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. I think a lot of people were getting very excited and they were saying that because the federal government had run a surplus, that demonstrated that they were good economic managers (laughs) and had they run Mm. a deficit, that might have demonstrated that they were bad economic managers. And one way I was thinking about this, 
Imagine there's this guy down the road who's building a house and you can hear his hammer and you can hear how many times he's struck the wood mm. or whatever with his mm. hammer. And you go, I have heard 2,459,000 hammer strokes. Now, does that tell me if he's doing well building mm. his house or not? No, it's just a number exactly. of hammer strokes. You don't know if he's been missing the nails or if he even had a yeah. good building plan to start yeah. with. So the surplus is just a number and yeah. it's irrelevant for it's telling irrelevant. you how well the budget was constructed. Well, <laughs> the, the terminology, the, the language that's used around the budget is just plain backwards. It's, it's, it's arse about. Okay? <laughs> a, a government surplus is a private sector deficit. So if you're going to use this term deficit and surplus, and everybody's going to get extremely happy when they hear the word surplus, people need to understand that surplus, that means mm. there's essentially you're shrinking the private sector. If you have a government surplus, you have a private sector deficit. That was the whole point of the exercise that we went through earlier in the show with Bill Mitchell. He's showing you that if the government injects more money into the private sector than it's taking out, it runs what's known as a government deficit, but that's equal to a private sector surplus. That's good, especially if you direct that surplus to the right areas. Mm. So, so the terminology around surplus and deficit, it, if you know basic two-entry accounting, you'll know that there's a deficit here, there's a surplus there. And what the commentators don't talk about is the private sector surplus or deficit. They just talk about the government. Mm-hmm. So just some simple change in the language. There's also another word I keep hearing is the coffers. The government's coffers <laughs> are filling up or the government's coffers are emptying out. And so people have this sense, I think, that if there's a surplus, that means the government's socking money away somewhere <laughs> in these coffers. Yeah, so a government that can that can create currency on demand by issuing uh, what an appropriations bill to the RBA at any time it likes, just like it did during World War II, like through the GFC, through the pandemic, it can just instruct the RBA to whack out hundreds of billions of dollars. By typing numbers into bank accounts. Does not need to receive tax revenue to no. fund its, its its operation, you know. And, and these are some... There are no coffers, people. I hate to tell you that, but that is simply how the money mm. is drained from the economy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. all that means is that it goes... I found out where it goes, actually. It goes into these accounts, and it's a very creative name for these accounts, OPAs, which mean Official Public Accounts. And they are a type of account in which the numbers go up, but the numbers never go down, which means they never take money back out of those accounts. (laughs) Right. The the, the accumulation of all the deficits over the history of our economy is approaching $1 trillion dollars. As Bill said in his talk earlier, that's an injection by the government into the economy of a trillion dollars. And that's good because the private sector needs a government injection to operate. All private sector profits come from government spending. Mm. There's no such thing as private sector derived profit. All that money comes from the, from the public sector. So, so if we want to evaluate whether the government are good economic managers... I wouldn't be looking at this surplus. I wouldn't be looking at this deficit. What I might ask myself is, hmm, do we have masses of people unemployed? Do we have tens of thousands of people who are underemployed? Do we have a health crisis in which we don't have enough nurses? Do we have an environmental crisis that might be threatening the very existence of humanity? Do we have a species extinction crisis in Australia where we are up there with the Amazon and Indonesia for our rates of extinction? So what do you think, uh, Lily, about how you might evaluate the budget? That's exactly what I'd look at. I'd look at um, 
I'd look at several things, but one of the main things would be well-being. I'd look at well-being from the perspective of the individual. Uh, does this budget allow the individual to live a more fulfilled, creative, satisfying life or not? I would also look at environmental well-being, as you mm -hmm. mentioned. I look at whether uh, the environment is tracking along nicely as a result of government spending. And I'd also look at community well-being. I'd look at how we interact with each other. And I'd use that as um, a measure of equality, how well we have actually distributed the resources that we've created. I'm wondering, Andy, how that might play out if we were going to actually think about a well-being budget and evaluating it along those kind of criteria. What would that look like? Do you have any ideas? It could look like all sorts of things, but certainly not what it is now. And I think one thing that you'd really need to look at for a wellbeing budget is people who are unemployed or underemployed differently. We, they're currently talked about as a cost to the budget, and that's completely the wrong framing. <laughs> the, the way that really what, what you should be looking at, especially for a country that can issue currency, is just the, the actual potential and opportunity that that group of people provides. There's half a million people unemployed right now in Australia and, and about half a million more underemployed or actually close to a million more. Mm -hmm. That's a million and a half people that could vastly add to the value created in this society. And basically doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations, you could employ as everyone we're as we're yeah. very yeah. good back at. Russell those envelopes. <laughs> um, so on the back of the envelope, about $30 billion, you could employ everyone who's currently unemployed wow. uh, on okay. the minimum wage. Now, $30 billion is, is relatively tiny. In the mm -hmm. budget terms, that's less than 5% of, of all government spending. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's less than 3% of, of the total money supply. So you wouldn't notice it really in terms of the, the money out there. And what you would get is a huge injection to the economy. That, that would increase employment by around 3 or 4%, which, you know, to give you some context, that would add about $60 billion of, of value to the economy. Now, what do these numbers mean? Well, just think about it. You're putting in $30 billion and you're getting $60 billion of value. That's clearly a pretty good mm -hmm. return. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's notwithstanding all the, the positive social gains and the, the well-being improvement for people being out of unemployment. That's obviously critical. But just the economics of talking about people as a cost is just ridiculous mm. because the, the potential to, to spend that money um, and unlock this potential means that you're creating prosperity and, and you're almost certainly reducing inflation because you're vastly increasing the mm. amount of stuff out there. You're yeah. producing so much that you're pushing down prices. The reverse of that uh, picture that you're painting is the thing I think of as the current tragedy, which is if you have an economy where you have unmet needs, for example, somebody needs a job so that they can pay their electrical mm. bills and their medical bills, and if you have an economy where you have the ability to meet those needs, you have the resources, you've got the machinery, you've got the equipment, you've got the land, you've got the skills, mm. and all you need to do is spend the money to put those two things together and you're not spending the money even though you're the federal government and you have an unlimited access to dollars. To me, that's the reverse of what you're describing, which is the great tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. 
Now, I'll tell you my favourite part of the budget, which was the raise to the unemployment benefit, so the payments that people get uh, when they're on unemployment benefits. And I noticed that the Labor government, they did offer an increase of about $40 a fortnight to people who are on unemployment benefits. And they also gave a little bit of an extra increase to people who are over 55. The cynic in me is wondering, where did they pull that number 40 from? There were people like the Anti-Poverty Centre, like the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, like ACOS and many other organisations who have been calling for an increase of $40 a day to the unemployment benefit. So the cynic in me just thinks, well, if people weren't paying close attention, maybe they would hear that $40 amount go, well, that's that box ticked, we did that one. <laughs> they misheard. <laughs> so I think we've got to give some credit where credit's due to Labor because they did actually address some of the problems that we have in our economy. They have recognised that uh, unemployment benefits are too low, that rent is a, a, a problem. They identified the problems, but they didn't address them properly. They've taken a very softly, softly approach to uh, to addressing some major issues. And the, the major issue that's evolving here is inequality. And inequality is used by uh, neoliberal capitalism to uh, put downward pressure on wages. They say by putting downward pressure on wages, they keep inflation down because if wages go up, then the price of stuff goes up as well. That's their excuse. The real reason for it is that they put downward pressure on wages, it increases profits. And Labor needs to be bold to address this. They are the Labor Party. They're supposed to be looking after workers uh, and they need to address this widening, neoliberal-inspired gap. Um, now, I've been reading this book by um, Jason who? So Kevin's going to hold the book I, up I, to the microphone, people. <laughs> so we're talking about inequality. It says it's not income itself that matters, but how it's distributed. So mm. Societies with unequal income distribution tend to be less happy. There are a number of reasons for this. Inequality creates a sense of unfairness. It erodes social trust, cohesion and solidarity. It's also linked to poorer health, higher levels of crime and less social mobility. People who live in unequal societies tend to be more frustrated, anxious, insecure and discontent with their lives. They have higher rates of depression and addiction. Mm. So in Australia now, we're a, a wealthier country than we were 30 or 40 years ago, but somehow we've got all these people sleeping on the street. So mm. some people are getting richer, but it's the distribution that is sadly sadly missing. And being kind of measly about things which need big attention, so Labor's kind of identifying some problems, but... It's too trapped by neoliberalism to do anything particularly effective about it and they're not brave enough yet to take things on. Mm. Uh, one way to evaluate how well the budget is doing is how well it's addressing these issues around uh, inequality as well as these issues of caring for the environment and caring for each other. Uh, was there anything either of you'd like to add about uh, what you'd like to see in the budget or what you would like to hear differently about the way people are talking about the budget? For me, um, it's such a missed opportunity. I agree with Andy and yourself and Kev um, because, for example, um, aged care, mm -hmm. we think of it as a necessary evil. It could be so much more than that. <laughs> uh, there are residential aged care centres that have huge waiting lists. There's one in Tasmania, Corangi Village, where they are very research-based and they've created this village where they have clusters of small homes in there and they have people living in small groups 
and they group together on the basis of their values because, duh, who wouldn't want to live with someone that they share similar values with? What if they put with? us with neoliberals, yeah. Kevin, well, when we retire? And to me, I don't know. To be exactly right. That would be like Sartre's version of hell. But, yeah, but you're basically um, – you're afforded that dignity in this place to live with people that you might actually get on with and have fun with. And at the same time, they've also got uh, research informing how the carers, the aged care workers actually interact and they've found that it's much better quality of communication and care if sometimes when someone's having a mild episode of dementia and they think you're their cousin Lorna, for example, mm-hmm. these people actually play along. Oh, right. They don't say, don't you know it's 2023 and we're going to stuff you full of antipsychotics now, right, right. as was shown in the Age Care Royal mm-hmm. Commission, in fact. Mm-hmm. Right. They actually engage and go on that journey with that person. And I find that so inspiring. That's just one example. The government could role an inspiring workplace like that right across the country. You could have Corangi villages everywhere. You could get unemployed actors working as aged care mm. workers. I reckon they'd love it. Oh, it I would be an amazing that. imagination <laughs> journey. And for me, just the budget, yes, I agree, Kev, it does address certain issues. It mentions them, but it goes nowhere near enough in inspiring people to really participate in them. So the current uh, mainstream commentary on that would be, that sounds like a very expensive expensive way to run an aged care facility. I don't think we can afford that. Mm. And I would say we can. We can find the dollars. Yes, and, 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 we have them. <laughs> and, and just on that, there's this commentary that's been running after the budget, which is, uh, oh, it's an inflationary budget because the government's spending too much money. They're spending too much money on aged care nurses. They're spending it on, on raising the unemployment benefits. Therefore, it's going to be inflationary. Well, how? And And, and the thing is, Whenever the government spends money on poor people, it's inflationary. Mm-hmm. Whenever it spends money on rich people, it's productive of some sort. What's your understanding of the inflation issue, Andy? Well, my understanding is that no one really has a great understanding of it because <laughs> inflation is one of the worst forecast and worst understood and most complex to measure concepts out there in economics. We know that just through years of, of failed forecasts. And basically, one of the lowest correlating things with inflation is a budget deficit. It's only in cases where you have extreme deficit spending that's kind of spiralling out of control. But for, for countries that run deficits of a few percent of GDP, there's absolutely no, there's no connection. And especially now, it's really important for people to understand that inflation in Australia now has nothing to do with government spending. It has everything to do with what's called supply-side inflation, supply-side factors, which are to do with a scarcity, a global scarcity of important goods. That's coming from particularly things like the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about getting our books in order, it's, it's, it's got nothing to do with the problem we're trying to solve. And in fact, really what we should be doing is doing the opposite. In times of scarcity, what, what's a good thing to do? Get more stuff. It's and how up. do you get more stuff? Is to employ unemployed people. That's why I'd love to see a job guarantee in, mm-hmm. in the budget. You know. And now I've got a vision of them yeah. running around pretending to be Aunt Lorna. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great use of the job guarantee. Yes. I definitely recommend anyone Google that once you've finished playing Bill Mitchell's game over dinner with your, with your, with your friends. <laughs> Google <laughs> job guarantee. It's put in other countries. Play with your calculator next time yeah. too. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station 3CR with Anne and Kev. Great program. Great guests. <laughs> Thank you.
we were told that the assistance, uh, the rental assistance um, has been increased and that the government's spending, that's going to be inflationary. Mm. Okay. Now, the rental assistance has been provided because we have a rental crisis happening and we have a rental crisis because landlords have been passing on interest rate rises to their tenants. And the reason that they've done that is because the Reserve Bank only has one instrument to fight inflation, which is to bring the lever up or down. So we brought the lever up. The lever being? The lever being interest rates going up, which is actually added to inflation because that means rents go up because anybody who has an investment property and has a loan on that will just pass that interest rate straight on to the tenants. Uh, So that's an inflationary action, which results in uh, rents going up. Then the government says we're going to give extra rental assistance and the Conservatives go, oh, you can't give rent assistance, that's inflationary. They they will try and shut the the conversation down mm. with with this crazy irrational logic. Mm. So mm. they're providing mm. a measure which which the conservatives call inflationary to react to a measure by the Reserve Bank that's inflationary that was supposed to be deflationary. Yes, Everything's this, this inflationary <laughs> boogeyman is what gets rolled out uh, to stop a lot of the spending that we're talking about that could go into something like a wellbeing budget. And it's counterintuitive, a lot of the inflation stuff. Like um, if we did start raising the um, wages for aged care workers and early childhood care workers, okay, so now we've got a lot of old people who are leading happier lives, but at the same time, we weren't, what, we weren't growing more carrots and onions. So wouldn't we then foresee inflation because these people have got more wages to spend on stuff? I think we need to remember that inflation is something that tends to get talked about as a, as a lump sum concept. It's this big stick called inflation. Inflation, in fact, when the ABS publishes inflation, it publishes a very rich picture of, of inflation across 80, about 87 different categories. The, the point of inflation is that it, it's an average cost of living change and it changes very differently across different products. Some things are, in fact, decreasing. The things like clothing and footwear have been decreasing in price. They've average. been decreasing Would lately. you believe it? Tell I anyone. wouldn't have believed it. Yes, but... But we've heard it from a non-economist, yes, so we have right. to believe so it. Has it. To, yes, yeah. I have to be right. Um, but I guess the point is that, you know, inflation... It goes up for some things, it goes down for some things. And what we need to think about when we construct a budget is that, you know, yes, some measures may technically be inflationary in their sector. And that's, you know, so something like paying people in, in aged care or whatever more may increase the money supply a bit. But there's all sorts of positive effects that come from that that could also be deflationary. And obviously paying people to employ them through something like a jobs guarantee is obviously deflationary. So it's kind of like, you know, if, if I pretend I'm the private sector, I have three sandwiches and there's three of you and I come in with my three, let's say, cheese sandwiches and say, all right. Is that tasty cheese? And oh, well? why I was going to say I want pickles. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, okay. But basically, I'm the private sector and I say, how much money have you got? And you say 20 bucks. So I say, all right, well, the cost of these is 20 bucks each then because I set the prices based on what I think people can pay. That's what mm-hmm. kind of prices are. And so that's, that's the price of sandwiches. Now, if the government comes along and says, oh, I don't like this, you know, I want people to have free stuff and I'd, I'd like inflation to go down. And so I'm going to pay people money so that they have more money to spend and therefore mm-hmm. they can buy my stuff. So the government comes along and gives each of you $10. Now you all have $30. Mm-hmm. I'm the private sector. I still have three sandwiches and I come in and say, oh, you've got $30. And all right, in that case, the cost is 30 bucks. That's an example of an inflationary budget. So the, the government has just given money out to everyone. Mm. Uh, so the private sector will respond. That's an example where you spend a lot of money and you create inflation. But there's another example. Uh, The government says, all right, well, instead of paying you $10 each just to spend on sandwiches, I'm going to employ you with that $10. 
And with that $10, you're each going to produce two sandwiches. Mm. Uh, you're going to produce two egg sandwiches. So now we've got cheese sandwiches okay. and egg sandwiches. <laughs> so now what's happened is that you've got me, the private sector, that produces cheese sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And I say, all right, how much have you got? You've each still got $30 because you've got your 20 plus your wages that from the government job guarantee. And I say, all right, well, you've got 30 bucks each. I'll still take your 30. And you say, all right, you give me a 30. But then you've also got the two sandwiches you produced. So you've spent $30 and you've got three sandwiches. And that means that the average cost of sandwiches is now $10 each. Uh-huh. And it was, but it was 20 before. And so that's you, what we call deflationary. That's what we call a deflationary budget. So because I've paid the government money to produce goods and services, the total stock mm-hmm. of goods and services means that the average price of those goods has gone down. So there's a very important distinction to make between a dollar that's spent that can be spent just on consumption or on productions. This is really, really mm. important for people to understand. When, when we talk about deficits, where is the money going? So when, whenever you hear someone say, oh, we're spending too much, we're in deficit, ask where is the money going? Not how much, it doesn't matter how much the deficit is, it's where, where is it, is it, where is it being spent? spent? That's a good question to leave people thinking about when they're hearing about the budget. Yeah, it's all about the distribution. I think Andy's yeah. given Bill a run for his money on creating mini economies. Now I've got two terraniums <laughs> <laughs> with an economy in each one. So thank you both so much for coming in today. It was really enjoyable lovely speaking Andy, with you. It's been uh, lovely having you here, so cheers. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Don't and forget hope- the Radiothon coming up as well. Yes, and that's where you can throw a bit of that deficit our way. Yes, well, is that deficit or is it um, uh, surplus? Because it'll be <laughs> <laughs> private Don't sector start. saving. Don't start. That's good to be surplus for three CR, deficit for you, but it'll be money well spent. It's good distribution. Exactly. We've got to go. Nathalie coming up next. Um, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you again soon. And we will be back again, same time on the Friday of the twenty sixth of May. See you later. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. 
Well, we could call the band the permanent income hypothesis or the Ricardian equivalent or rational expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to like form this band and sing it to them. And we're going to, we're going to bring the economists in. We're going to get musical. We're going to do the regression theory of money to music. That will work. That's good. Regression <laughs> theory of money. What runs with regression? Regression, suppression, <laughs> instant. There's, there's a world of opportunity here. You know Bill's going to be on the car. Like, you'll be straight on it. Uh-huh. Have you ever sung before in a band? No, you don't. You do not want to hear me sing, Kevin. <laughs> What's your next theory? Just, just like, do it and make sure, like, you can spoken word. Get my speaking We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, okay. I'm not going to go. How's about... General
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.